So we're jumping back into Romans, and I heard this week about three pastors who were retired, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, and a Baptist. And they all met together regularly at a coffee shop. They were having coffee, and they would discuss the good old days, right? And so one day they were discussing some stuff, and it led to, if you were not what you were, what would you be coming down to denomination, right? So they started talking about, well, if I were not a Baptist, if I were not a Presbyterian, well, the Presbyterian said, you know what? If I weren't a Presbyterian, I think I'd be a Pentecostal because I've always wanted to loosen up a little bit and lap a church a time or two, right? Well, the Methodist said, if I wasn't Methodist, I, I think I'd be Catholic because, you know, I, I, I really would like to drink all that communion wine that's been blessed and has to be drunk, right? The Baptist didn't say a word. He just sat there. I mean, silent and just didn't say what. So they looked at him and said, hey, what would you be if you weren't Baptist? And he said, ashamed. So uh, <laughs> now that's a joke, okay? That's a joke. But that's exactly how the Jews felt. The Jews felt that they were the only ones with a secret handshake to get into heaven. They felt they were God's favorite. They felt they were God's pet because of their ethnicity and their ethic. In other words, because they were born Jewish. They thought all required to be right with God was to be born Jewish, their ethnicity, and then their ethic, what they did, how they worked, all the things that they did. So they thought they were right with God, okay? And, and so this is the way a lot of people feel about salvation, to be quite honest, in our world, uh, there's a lot of faulty views of salvation. Let me tell you the story of a couple that you all know. The, the, this lady was born on the third row of a Baptist church. Matter of fact, she started going to church nine months before she was born, and she had grown up in church, listened to more sermons than Billy Graham had preached, okay? So she's been there all of her life. Her husband, on the other hand, man, he didn't want anything to do with church. He spent his Sunday mornings baptizing worms out on the lake, right? And so he didn't want to talk about church. He didn't want to talk about Jesus. He didn't want anybody talking to him about about Jesus. He didn't pray. He didn't read the Bible. So when it comes to salvation, we look at these two and we say, man, that's obvious. He's hell bound. I mean, man, he, if anybody's going to hell, he is. I mean, he, he, he doesn't want anything to do with God. He can't even spell God. Now, she obviously is going to heaven. I mean, man, she has gone to church all of her life. She's been baptized. She's a member down there. She has worked in the nursery. She's given supported missionaries with her fund money. I mean, surely she's going to heaven, right? Well, uh, eventually, this dude is out fishing on the lake with a buddy that he invites who happens to be a, a, a believer, and he shares the gospel. For the first time, this guy has heard the true, real gospel. And, and, and hearing the true, real gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts his heart. He surrenders his life to Jesus and is saved right there on the lake. It's an amazing day. Tragically, a week later, he has a heart attack and dies. But he goes to heaven because he trusted in Jesus' righteousness rather than his own. His wife continues to go about business. She gets even more involved in church now that her husband's gone. Two years later, she dies, but she goes to hell. The reason she goes to hell is because she trusted in her own righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Jesus for her salvation. Now, this is a fictional story. I made it up, but it's real. It happens every day. Matter of fact, you know this couple. Some of you are this couple. Okay? And so when it comes to salvation, people believe a lot of different things about salvation. Many people believe that all that's required for you to go to heaven is for your heart to stop beating. You die. That's it. Man, you die and you, you no, no, no air in your lungs, that means you're going to heaven. Well, others would say, nah, that's a little cheesy and a little shallow and a little, you know, too much for me. But I do believe God grades on a curve. You know, I mean, when he looks at me, surely I'm going to get in. Look at the world. And if you believe God grades on a curve, the greatest advice I can give you would be on the day of judgment, when you're standing before God and all these people are there, you go find Ozzy Osbourne somewhere and stand beside of him, okay? Because surely God's going to look at you and him and go, okay, you're in. So, but here's the deal. You better be sure about this because you only get one shot. 
right? There are no second chances. There are no do-overs, no mulligans, no makeup exams. It's, it, and, it, it, and contrary to popular belief, God doesn't grade on a curve. It is a test that's pass or fail only. And you have to score 100% righteousness in order to pass. 100% righteousness in order to pass. Anything else is failure, right? Today we're jumping back into Romans. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome to explain what salvation is all about. And I want you to, I want you to remember the context. You, anytime you're reading Scripture, you cannot divorce the Scripture from its intended audience. You have to understand context. Paul's writing to the church in Rome to explain salvation to them so that they and we, this is Scripture, so it's, it's, it's enduring, right? It's good for all people, all time, all places. It never goes out of style. It's always right for all people. And so he's letting them and us know how to be saved. That's a biblical word, salvation, how to be saved, right? How to be right with God. And he's doing it because he wants to go to Spain. If you'll remember, you can go back and listen to the first messages in Romans. He's wanting to go to Spain to preach the gospel because the Spaniards have not heard about Jesus and the gospel's not there. And he wants to go to preach the gospel in Spain. And he wants the Romans to support him. And so rather than sending them a support letter of like, hey man, so many Spaniards are lost and I need your help to go te- preach the gospel, can you support me? He goes into theological, uh, this treatise about salvation so they will get it, so they'll know, wow, the Spaniards do need Jesus because they're believing in themselves for righteousness, okay? And so he's preaching or he's writing this letter so that they'll and, and we will understand salvation. We got through chapter 9 in May, stopped, called a timeout, and then we looked in the summer about at the 10 plagues God used in Exodus to bring Israel out of Egypt. You can go back there and catch up online if, if, if you want to as well. Today we're jumping back in and remember as we jump back in, Paul is answering the question at this point in his letter, what about the Jews? Because he's been preaching this salvation or teaching about this salvation and and how it is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not through any works, merit of your own. And and so therefore, uh, the Jews are not saved. And so they're they're answering or asking, what about the Jews? Hold on a minute. The Jews are the most religious people on the face of the planet. If they're not saved, how do we know we are? If they didn't pass the test, how do I know I'll pass the test? Paul said, that's a great question. So he, he, he spends chapters 9 through 11 basically answering that question. In chapter 9, he answered it by talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Right? He talked about election. He talks about those things in chapter 9. And he knew that talking about God's sovereignty and salvation would get people fired up and want to run him out of town. And so, so he spent an entire chapter talking about these things and about God's sovereignty and salvation. And it was so deep and so much that we spent a lot of time on chapter 9. Okay? We spent a lot of time there. But then today we're going to jump into chapter 10. And 10 he shifts gears. He shifts gears from God's sovereignty to man's responsibility. Because you see, God's sovereignty in salvation, and he is sovereign. His sovereignty doesn't violate man's responsibility. Okay? I mean, when we look at that, his sovereignty doesn't violate man's responsibility. And so, therefore, when we look at Scripture, what I want you to understand is every time Scripture talks about salvation, God is given all the credit. Every time all the time God has given the credit. You would agree with that. I don't think anyone that's a part of LifePoint would say, oh yeah, I had everything to do. I had some stuff to do with my salvation. It wasn't all God. We would say, it's all God. God is the one who saved. In Scripture, we also 
know that every time someone is lost and is not saved, it's 100% resp- their responsibility. It's 100% their responsibility, okay? And so, so as we come down to that, the Jews could not blame God. God's sovereign, but the Jews couldn't blame God. They were not saved because of their spiritual pride, because they trusted in their own works. They trusted in their own merit for salvation rather than in Jesus' merit, rather than in Jesus' righteousness. And so, as we come down to this, we're going to jump in chapter 10 today. And and in chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And our bottom line today is an unmerited salvation because that's the bottom line. That's our tagline for this entire installment of Romans because that's what we're going to look at over the next few chapters. So as we introduce it today, we just went with unmerited salvation as our, our tagline for today too because that's what we want you to get. So let's dive in and begin to process uh, what this is and un, uh, uh, in chapter 10 verses 1 through 13. So let's dive in and look at this. Chapter 10 verse 1 says, brothers, Paul's using church language because he's talking to the church. He says brother because there is brother in Christ. Okay? He's talking to the church. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. He's praying to God for who's them? The Jews. He's praying for the Jews. That's the question he's answering. So my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now here's the importance of this. Paul is talking about uh, uh, the Jews. He's talking about, uh, you know, uh, his desire is for that they be saved. Now, This proves that theology for Paul was not just intellectual, it was very emotional. Theology shouldn't just expand your brain, it should explode your heart. Your your theology, if, if it's done rightly, changes how you live right? Beliefs determine behavior. Your priorities are revealed in your prayers, and your prayers flow out of your priorities. And so what we see about Paul is, Paul had good theology. He, he knew that the only way to heaven was Jesus Christ. The only way to heaven was trusting in Jesus' righteousness, trusting in what Jesus had done on the cross, not in what man had done, which is what the Jews believed in their ethnicity and in their ethic, because they were born Jewish and because of what they did. He knew that was not the case. The Jews were his people. He loved them. And so his prayer was that they be saved. That was his prayer. See, some people can come out of Romans 9 and go, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why pray? Paul blows that out of the water. Paul did not pray because God's sovereign. That's the reason Paul prayed, because God's sovereign. Now, if I want you to to think about something. If if your daddy or your granddaddy or your grandmama or your mama, I want to use somebody that that would evoke emotion in your life over this issue. If your granddaddy or grandmama were not saved, and, 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 and God made them savable with the death of Jesus on the cross, if that's what God did, he made them savable, and now it is up to them, then when you prayed and said, God, would you save granddaddy, God's answer would be, yeah, I would love for granddaddy to be saved too. I've done my part, now he's got to do his, right? So Paul's prayer was because he knew that God was sovereign. And if you believe that salvation is up to granddaddy, then talk to granddaddy more uh, than you do Jesus. If you believe it's up to Jesus, you talk to Jesus more, right? Now you talk to both in either situation, but where are you going to put the emphasis? Depends on what you believe. Man, I plead with people. I I plead with people to be saved, but man, my, my, my ultimate plead is with God because he's got to convict them. 
the whole, our mind is seared by sin, and because our mind is seared by sin, you know, that's why as, as we're looking, and we talked this morning in our leadership initiative theology class about when we're looking at the doctrine of God. You know, we've got all these ideas, we've got some false views of God, atheism, agnostic, uh, agnostics, atheists, polytheism, deism, uh, pantheism, all these faulty views of God. We've got all these arguments, philosophical arguments for the existence of God, you know, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, uh, all these arguments for the existence of God that are philosophical and logical, but God's greater than any of those arguments. And the bottom line is, our mind, because it's seared by sin, cannot comprehend who God is and explain who God is fully with logic. It has to be God who takes away our blindness and, and, and our irrationality when it comes to thinking about who God is. So God has to convict no one. No one would think God doesn't have to convict. God has to convict. So, so Paul said, I know that I, I've got to plead with God because God has to convict. And I've got to share with them because it's their responsibility to surrender to God. See, God's sovereign man's responsible. God's sovereign and man's responsible. And so, you know, uh, God's sovereignty doesn't eliminate our prayers. It includes our prayers because God has chosen to save through our prayers and through our preaching. That's what we're going to see next week through our prayers and then through our preaching next week. We're going, to, we're going to see that. So what do we do? We pray hard. We pray hard. Pray hard for people to be saved. See, Paul's prayers were unanswered in his lifetime. Did you know that? Paul's prayers are still unanswered. Paul prayed that the Jews would be saved and they still don't know God as a whole. There are pockets, there are Messianic Jews, but as a whole, the Jews are still unsaved. Their eyes are still closed to the gospel. Their hearts are hardened to the gospel, right? So Paul's prayers, what he pleaded with God are still unanswered, but he prayed, prayed, prayed. What's that tell us? You pray, 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 trust God's timing. You trust God's time. You pray, pray, pray. Pray hard, talk to people hard, trust God hard. Pray to God hard, right? We pray, we pray, we pray. Now, we wouldn't blame Paul if he told the Jews to go to hell because of how they treated him. Man, they ran him out of town. They stoned him. They, 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 I mean, they absolutely ridiculed him. We wouldn't blame him if he said, you Jews can go to hell. But he didn't tell them to go to hell. What he did was he prayed that they go to heaven, and he told them about Jesus so that they would hopefully go to heaven by surrendering their life to him, right? So this is a great example of what it means to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you love your enemies? Sometimes the people you need to really be praying for and sharing the gospel with are those who persecute you. Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? That's what we see Paul doing. Let's look at verses two through four. He says, for I bear them witness, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're religious. They're religious, man, the Jews. There's no one more religious in that day. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I'm going to explain this. For Christ is the end of the law. I'm really going to explain this because it can be confusing. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the Jews were so zealous for God. They were the most religious people. I mean, they were very zealous for God. They were so zealous, if you'll remember, for the law that they added hundreds of rules to the law. Do you remember? God said to honor the Sabbath, and they began to define what it meant to honor the Sabbath in some way, and then hold people accountable to their uh, uh, interpretation and into, to what, how they had, they had bound people's conscience to their opinion, not God's word. 
They added all these rules to the law. And the most zealous people in Jerusalem when Jesus walked the planet were the scribes and Pharisees. Man, they worked their entire life to be righteous with God and to make sure everybody knew how righteous they were. So Jesus comes along, true righteousness. And they even argued with Jesus. They even nailed him to the cross because he didn't meet their standard. That's zeal without knowledge, folks. That is the epitome of zeal without knowledge. Now, Paul understood their zealousness. He was a Pharisee, remember? Prior to his salvation, B.C., uh, in his life, he was a Pharisee. He understood how zealous they were. He would even kill Christians. He would arrest them and murder them. And he, and he did that thinking he was literally in the right, thinking it was the right thing to do. He was doing God a favor. Today we look out and some of the most zealous people that we ever will see are radical Muslims. They're very zealous, okay? Very zealous. Zeal without knowledge, folks, leads to nothing but terrorism and fanaticism. That's what zeal without knowledge does. So we must be zealous. Many people today think, oh, it doesn't really matter what people believe as long as they're sincere. You couldn't be more wrong. Good intentions are not good enough, folks. Good intentions are not good enough. It really does matter what we believe. We have to have zeal with knowledge. And so we have to have zeal, but we have to have knowledge of, of the gospel. And then we, be, we should be zealous for the gospel. We should be zealous for justice, zealous for love, zealous for the things of God, right? With knowledge, not religious, but we should be zealous with knowledge. And that's what, that's what Paul is, is saying as he talks about the Jews. He says that they're very zealous, but they're ignorant. And zealot, ignorant zealots become fanatics and terrorists, and we see that in our world today. Now, in verse 4, it's very confusing because in verse 4, he, he, he says that Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? Then I'll cause you to go, let me pump a break a little bit. Is Christ the end of the law? Does that mean that the Jews in the Old Testament were saved by the law, but in the New Testament were not, were saved by grace? That's not what it means. Uh, does that mean that today we don't have to keep the law because Christ ended the law, and man, we can do whatever we want to do because we're saved by grace? It's not what it means. What does it mean? Well, it means that Christ was, was the fulfillment of the law and that he fulfilled the law. And he brought the end of people's thoughts of trying to keep the law to be right with God, which that was never God's thoughts. That was never God's word. So what does it mean that Christ was the fulfillment of the law? Well, the law was uh, God's, revealed God's character. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. What does it mean in fulfilling the law? He, he never sinned. He never sinned. Jesus is the only person who was born uh, without sin because he was virgin born. You, virgin birth is vital to the Christian doctrine. Don't let anyone kid you, anyone that would say it doesn't matter. I don't know about, a, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know about all this virgin birth stuff. Why does it have to be a virgin birth? Has to be because of the transmission of original inherited sin. Jesus is the only person who was born without inherited sin. And then he never chose to commit sin. You see, you and I are doomed from the birth because as David said, I was, I was born, conceived in sin, right? It didn't mean it was a sinful conception. It means that when I was conceived, I was a sinner because I inherited Adam's sin DNA. So we're born sinners, but then we can't just blame Adam because we've chosen to sin. Not Jesus. He wasn't born a sinner, nor did he choose to sin. He was completely 100% perfect so that the Scripture could say, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He died my death in my place. 
He fulfilled the law, completely righteous, and died in my place on the cross. Then God brought him back from the dead on the third day, proving that his death had satisfied God's righteous standard. God's justice was satisfied. Then what he did, he took, when I surrendered to Jesus, because God's sovereign, but I'm responsible. So when I heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicted me, and I surrendered to Jesus. And I said, yes, I want to surrender my life to him. What happened was he imputed, which means gave, Christ's righteousness to me. He took my sin and gave it to Jesus. So now I'm righteous. I don't always act righteous, but I'm righteous because of God's righteousness. That's why Paul said they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They tried to earn their own. See, realizing I I don't have to earn my own righteousness. I have Jesus' righteousness. I don't always act right, but I am righteous in my standing before God. So that means when I confess my sin every day, because I, I hope you have times of confession if you're a Christian because you know you're not perfect, right? And so when I confess my sin every day, I confess not to be righteous with God because I am righteous. Knowing that when I was redeemed by God, if you're a Christian, knowing that when you were redeemed by God, he forgave all of your sin. He forgave the sin you had committed to that point and the sin you would always commit. He knows the sin you're going to commit tomorrow and he forgave it. So when you go to confess that sin, it is already forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation that for those who are in Jesus, Romans 5, 8. Remember that passage we preach. There's no condemnation. You're forgiven. So why do I confess? Not so that I can be righteous in standing before God again, but so I can be holy. Because God tells me to be holy as he is holy. Because of relationship, right? So they didn't understand God's righteousness. They tried to get their own righteousness. It was spiritual pride. And so as we look at this, we've got to understand God didn't give us the law to make us righteous. God didn't give us the law to make us righteous. He gave us the law to show us we can never be righteous on our own. When we look at the law and we realize, I can't ever keep that law. I blew it on the day I was born, right? I blew it the day I was born. I can never keep that law. So the law was not to save us, but it it should drive us to the cross, running to the cross for grace. It should drive us running to the cross for grace. And So we need to be saved not just from our sin. We need to be saved from our own attempts at righteousness, folks. We need to be saved from our spiritual pride and our own attempts at earning God's righteousness. That's what the Jews did. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, and so they trusted their own. They were doomed and damned because of it. And Paul says, no, it's not our righteousness, Romans. Understand that. The Spaniards need to hear the gospel because they don't know about Jesus' righteousness. They're ignorant. The Americans need to hear about the the gospel. The the Belgian, the, the Thai, the Mexican, the Puerto Rican. The, you name it, they need to hear the gospel because they think they can earn the righteousness, and it's Jesus' righteousness. Let me read verses 5 through 8. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. Okay, he's talking about the law of Moses, the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith... Okay, so you've got righteousness by your actions. Now this is the righteousness, Jesus' righteousness given to you, righteousness based on faith. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? This is talking about the righteousness of faith. It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So let me tell you what he says here. 
He comes in and he says something that like makes you go, huh? I mean, when Paul writes, it's sometimes you've got to read it a couple of times and you read it again and you say, okay, I don't, this is hard to understand, right? That's why I love Peter. Peter's talking about Paul's writing and said, sometimes it's cat Paul, he's hard to understand. You know, and if, and if Peter says that, that makes me feel good because sometimes I don't understand. So I have to d- dig in. Let me tell you what he says right here. Paul says that if we want to be saved by keeping the law, we would have to be 100% righteous, right? Remember what I said, the test is pass or fail. There's no makeup exams and it's 100% or failure. Man, 99 ain't good enough on this test. Man, in school, if I made, if I made a, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I made a C, man, I'm going home. I'm, man, I'm, I'm shouting to mom and daddy. And daddy's like, yes, son, way to go. I mean, right? Listen, uh, C ain't good enough. A B ain't good enough. 99 is not good enough. 100% perfection is required. Right? And so, so he said, if you want to keep the law and be saved, then you would have to be 100% successful. You would have never have had to break the law, which you couldn't because you were born a sinner. But then even if that wasn't the case, if you could have lived perfect and you haven't, right? But even if you could have, or even if now if you didn't, if you said today, I'm going to from this day forward, then now you're a fool for thinking that, Right? So he says, look, you had to be 100%, and none of us have done that. No matter what your mama tells you, buddy, you ain't perfect. And I know some of you dudes' mamas told you that all your life. Your wife's had to beat that out of you. You're not perfect. We've all repeatedly broken the law over and over in our heart and in our action, right? Repeatedly, we've not loved God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors ourselves, so we're damned and doomed if it comes down to performance and keeping the law in our own merit because it's 100% and we blew it, right? And so Paul quotes Deuteronomy then to help us to understand this whole thing about descending and ascending. Because you read it and you're like, huh? He quotes Deuteronomy to, to help us understand it's always been by grace. He says, the righteousness by faith says you don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven or who will descend to the abyss. And you go, what? what? This is Jewish phrases that really what they mean when they would say that, it's like idioms and phrases that we use. They're talking about things that are impossible, who will ascend to heaven? Well, nobody's going to ascend to heaven, you know, on our own effort. Who's going to descend? And Nobody's going to descend. He's talking about things that are impossible. And so what he's talking about is you Jews are talking about the thing that's impossible. Trying to keep the law to be saved, it's impossible. You can't do it, right? You don't have to ascend. Don't think you've got to ascend to heaven. In other words, to bring Christ down because God's already done that. Don't think you have to descend, bring him up from the dead. God's already done that. In other words, he's saying you don't have to do the impossible. Jesus already did. Jesus already did it. He did it for you. It's not your work. It is his work. You don't have to do it. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did, right? In verse 8, he says, the word is near. Now, that's a Jewish idiom. That means it's in your grasp. So what he's saying is, look, folks, you don't have to do something impossible. God has already done it for you by sending Jesus. And when he says the word is near, he's saying it's in your grasp. In other words, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in theology to understand the gospel. It's not, it's not an intellectual process. Our mind is seared by sin. It's simple. The gospel is not hard to understand what he's saying is, but it's very hard to submit to. Very hard to submit to. Right? I mean, the Jews understood it perfectly, but they didn't want to be told you're a sinner that needs a Savior. They wanted to be told, you, you dudes are the MVPs. You guys are the varsity. Right? I mean, you guys have got it. How do we be like you? That's what they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear, you're a sinner that needs a Savior. Your work will never get you there. It's only, they didn't want to hear that. See, that took all the cred away from them. 
That's not what they wanted to hear. And so, so uh, you know, he says it's not hard to understand, but it's very hard to submit to. Very hard to submit to. So let's close this out, 9 through 13. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is Old Testament, okay? We're going to talk about that. He says it over and over, Old Testament stuff. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Old Testament, the Scripture says, I love this. How do we know this is true? Because uh, the Bible tells me so, right? It's like a children's song, isn't it? Because the Bible tells me so. That's what he's saying. The Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, Old Testament. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Old Testament. Listen, he keeps going to the Old Testament with these quotes, bringing up salvation because he's wanting you to know and me to know and the Jews to know. Listen, this, ain't, this is not something new. This is not law versus grace. It's always been by grace. It's always been by grace. And he says, if you want salvation, he didn't say, you got to earn it. You got to earn it. You know, right now, man, you watch the Titans last night, man, you get some hope. But all those players, man, there's a whole bunch of players on that field right now, and they're trying to earn that roster spot. Because that's what we're taught here, right? You got to earn that spot. That's not what God says. That's not what Paul said. He didn't say you have to earn your roster spot in heaven. He said, what? Confess and believe. Confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Now, let me pause right there because it sounds like there's two things required for salvation, believing and confessing. And that's not true. We know from the, you can't build a doctrine off of a passage, right? I mean, the Church of Christ brethren come in here and, and, and will teach that you got to be saved, baptized in order to be saved. It's Acts 2.38, right? Acts 2.38 says, repent. And, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. So they say, oh, there it is. got to be baptized to be saved. You can't build the doctrine off of one verse. We know the Bible teaches it's Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus, uh, you know, preaching. It's not Jesus plus confess. It's not Jesus. It's Jesus and only Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's it. Jesus plus nothing, right? So what does this mean? Well, here's what he means. He means that it's truly believing in Jesus that's going to save you. And those who truly believe will loudly confess. Those who truly believe, folks, will loudly confess. If you don't confess Jesus with your words, actions, and life, then you probably don't truly believe. Those who b truly believe will loudly confess. James talked about it as uh, works without, uh, I mean, faith without works is dead. Works do not save you, but if your faith does not produce works, you probably didn't get saved, right? Faith without works is dead, James said. Luther said it this way. He, he called it a, a fide viva. Is the only faith that saves is a fide viva, a living faith in Latin. A living faith, he said. In other words, it lives, it moves, it changes you, right? And so those, what, what, what uh, Paul is saying here is that you, salvation is only by grace through faith, believing in Jesus, and those who truly believe will loudly confess, okay? And so, so we, we need to, to understand this because many people have trusted a profession of faith for their salvation. Let me, let me explain. I, I want, I, some of you are new and, and, and to us, and I want you to understand because every now and then I get a question about how come you guys don't do a come forward invitation? It's not that we never do. It's not that we never will. It's that that's not our norm. And let me tell you why that's not our norm. Our norm is because, uh, man, we do an invitation. Every week we preach the gospel, and every week we invite people to respond to the gospel. We tell people to come back and see us. We tell people to go, but we don't just do and come forward 
because, and, and it became customary, it, it, it's really in its infancy still in, in, the, uh, in the church, and we see it less and less today, about 100 years ago in the age of revivalism when people started doing this, and, and what would happen is, you know, uh, uh, the music's playing, and man, you come forward, fill out a card, pray a prayer, all that. Some of you, that's exactly what happened, and I'm not discounting it. Please don't understand. I'm saying it's wrong if you come from a church, or if you're part of a church. That's, I'm not saying it's wrong at all. I'm just telling you why we've chosen to step back from that because what we ended up doing is baptizing people who had made a profession of faith. Half of them were baptized again because they trusted in that profession of faith. Now listen, it's not a profession of faith that saves you. It is a possession of faith that saves you. Okay, I can profess anything I want to you. Okay, and so it is a possession of faith. Now when you possess faith, profession is very important. Those who truly believe will loudly confess, okay? And so, do you confess your faith? If you claim to be a believer, do you confess it? Do you profess it? The first way you confess it is public baptism. That's what Jesus said, right? That's, that was so closely associated in the New Testament that that's why it says repent and be baptized. It was so, uh, it was so clo uh, closely associated. So if you are a believer, do you confess it? Have you been baptized if you're a true believer? You see, we, we don't understand that in America because we have so weakened baptism. Or it's, it, it, when I say weakened it, uh, we haven't. It's just the circumstances have taken some of the strength away from it. Let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. In the day which Paul spoke this, and in most of the world today, if you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's one thing. But if you do it with baptism, at best, your family will disown you. At worst, they themselves will kill you. All over our world today, that's still the issue. So being baptized in many, many parts of India, in many, many parts of the world today, being baptized... Being baptized, you're signing your death warrant or your disownment from your family. See, that costs something. And it doesn't matter. The, Paul's point here to those who knows that it, it, confession is costly is saying that if you're truly saved, you will loudly confess no matter what it costs you. In America, see, getting baptized, we put it off because, man, that's, I mean, man, we get baptized great. I mean, people give us a high five and it's wonderful. I mean, we go out to lunch. There's no, our fa you know, family, I, we're not going to be thrown in jail for it. We're not going to be killed for it. It's just, so listen, listen, it, it, are you loudly confessing? You need to do it with your baptism if you're a believer. But it needs to go beyond baptism. It needs to be your life. Are you confessing with how you live your life? I think it was Francis of, a, of, of Assisi that has quoted but it was saying, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You've heard that? Well, it sounds cool. And now they're saying he really didn't say that. And I'm glad to know because it's horrible theology. And it is the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. I don't think any real saint would have said that. Now, part of it's true. Preach the gospel at all times. Yes. Always use words is what it should have said. Always. Those people who say, well, preach the gospel all the time, if necessary, use words, say, oh, I'm just going to live a good life. Well, that's great because all people's going to do is praise you. Oh, look how good he is. And they got to know the difference and why you're in it because Jesus is doing this. You've got to use words when you preach the gospel. It's through preaching that God has, has, has ordained that people are saved. That's why uh, we pray. That's why we preach because God is sovereign in salvation and he is his sovereign and chosen to use our prayers and our preaching and, and, as people respond, right? And so, so we, uh, uh, we, we have to preach the gospel. So do you live it? Yes, you must live it. Do you speak it? 
Yes, you must speak. Are you baptized? So, so we have to confess. Those who la- truly believe will loudly confess. Well, that would have been a good bottom line too today, wouldn't it? Those who truly believe will loudly confess. But now let's talk about believing because that's what it is. Believing, you've got to understand who Jesus really is, right? I mean, you've got to understand who Jesus really is. You can't make Jesus anybody you want, so you have to have some knowledge. Believing includes knowledge, right? I mean, you, you, you can't, there, there's a lot of people named Jesus in our world today, right? None of those people are going to save you, right? I mean, you gotta, who is Jesus, right? Who's the real Jesus? Well, there's a lot of people named Patrick in our world today, but they're not me. There's a lot of people named Jesus, but who, who's the real Jesus? Only the real Jesus is going to save you. You got to know who he is. You can't make him who you want to be. The Jehovah Witness and the Mormons have made Jesus into something that is completely anti-biblical. He's not even resembled the Jesus of the Bible. It's not that Jesus that saves. So who is Jesus? You've got to know. And so he he says here, you know, uh, as we we believe this, uh, we've got to know the facts about Jesus, right? But it's not intellect, it's the heart. That's why you've heard it said that, you know, 12 inches is is the distance between heaven and hell, the head to the heart. You got to get the, it's about belief. And what does he say you must believe? You must confess that Jesus is Lord. You got to believe he's Lord. What does Lord mean? Well, Lord, remember, we just come through Exodus uh, through the plagues. Lord is Yahweh. Old Testament uh, is the name for God, is Lord. So when he says that, he's saying a couple things. He's saying, first, you must believe that Jesus himself is God. He's God. He's not a created being. Uh, He's God. He's eternal. That's why Jesus uh, told them in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. The same name God used to Moses at the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. When Moses said, who am I going to tell him sent me? I am sent you. I am who I am. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he was saying. That's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him, because he said, I'm God. Jesus is God. Do you believe he's God? Not not just a good prophet, not just a good teacher. He's God. Lord means God. That was the name for God. Lord also means boss. That's what the word means, right? And when you were confessing in that day, they would say, Caesar is Lord. So you would stand up in, in Paul's day, whereas in, in some places they baptism would, would, would get you disowned or killed. And that day you were saying, Caesar's not Lord. That would get you killed. Right? So he said, Jesus is Lord. It means Jesus is God and Jesus is the, the master and king of my life. He is my boss. He dictates what I do. He tells me how to think and how to act and how to live. That's what you do. If you have a boss, you do what your boss says. If you don't do what your boss says, he's no longer your boss for a while. Right? And so Jesus, it's not that, uh, you know, you're going to lose Jesus as your boss because if you are redeemed, you can't lose your redemption, right? But if, you're, if you don't do what he says at some point, I'm not talking about, I, I, I screw up, but I'm, ta- I'm not talking about, do you, do you mess up? I'm talking about if you, if you don't honor the Lord, if you don't honor him as your Lord and boss and honor him as, as the master and, and king of your life, you're not a true believer. Those who truly believe loudly confess. They honor him as Lord. They believe that he's Lord. And so therefore, I'm going to obey what he says about money, about sex, about marriage, about kids, about relationships, about the church, because he's my boss. He's changed how I view the world. So it's a paramount to believe God raised him from the dead, he said. You see, you believe he's God. He lived a perfect life. He died in my place, uh, uh, my death as my substitute in my place on the cross. And God brought him back from the dead. He's alive today. He's God. And he's the only thing that can save. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells me so. 
That's what he said. And look, he says there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. In other words, there aren't two ways of salvation. It's not works for Jews, grace for the believer. It's not Old Testament for Jews, New Testament for the believer. It's always been one way. It's grace. That's what God says. That's what Paul says. So it's unmerited. It's an unmerited salvation. Unmerited. You can't work for it, folks. You work because of it, but you can't work for it. You work for it, you're never going to get it. If you don't work because of it, you probably didn't get it. Okay, you work because of it, but you don't work for it. It's unmerited. That's salvation. So for those of you here who are believers, what we're going to do right now, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going we're gonna to celebrate communion together. Communion, uh, we, a few weeks ago, we, we, we talked through, we did communion. We was going through the Passover, and then we kept learning more and more about the Passover. And so we're going to celebrate communion right now. What is communion? Well, it was instituted by Jesus. It's a sacrament or ordinance because Jesus ordained it. And it's, it's, it's taking a small piece of bread and a small cup of juice and it's, and, and that represents his body and his blood, and it's remembering his sacrifice on the cross for our salvation of those who surrender to him. Only for those who surrender to him. That's salvation only applies to those who surrender to him. And so we're gonna do that right now. And if you're a Christian, we wanna remember that. We wanna remember that our salvation is unmerited. It was the body and blood of Christ. It was unmerited. And uh, in a moment after I pray, our ushers are going to come down and hand that out when I get through praying. And, and uh, we're going to do that. And let me, let me tell you how we're going to celebrate that. If you're a believer, remember we talked about, uh, as we was going through the, the Exodus, uh, he said, God told them as they celebrate Passover that no foreigner was to participate. Now, what's that mean? Well, that means that's a spiritual. It's not an ethnicity. That doesn't mean for us people from Alabama can't take communion. I don't know why, but God included them. Alabamans. Football season. It's already started, all right? I said that at the first service. Somebody come up to me and showed me a passage in the Old Testament where it says, where is this high place which you ascend to? They call it Bama. <laughs> to prove to me that God loves people from Alabama. I love it. You can't beat them, join them, and I'm not joining them, so you got to make fun of them, okay? So, anyway. So this is for believers. That's my point. This is for believers. Believers. If you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, then this is a memorial to, for, to, to the one that you place your faith in, the one that you believe God raised him from the dead, the one that you believe lived a perfect life and died your death. This is a memorial. So we're going to pass this out in a moment after I pray, and, and, and it's going to be two cups in there. And you take both cups. I'll say this for those who are new. The cup, bottom cup's a little piece of unleavened bread. Unleavened leaven in the Scripture represents sin. And that's what he told them in the Passover. And, you know, Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus superseded it. And unleavened means we swept a place clean. And so what we're doing here is uh, Paul told us when we do this in 1 Corinthians, uh, he told us, in Corinthians, he told us to examine ourselves. So we want you to take this. If you're a believer, examine yourself. That means, God, is there anything within me I need to confess? Not because I want to be right with you in standing, but because I want to be holy and I want to confess. And so examine yourself. When you're ready, we're going to sing one song. And when you're ready, you take that piece of bread and then you uh, thank Jesus for his body that was broken and you eat that bread to remember it. Then you take that juice. We use juice. Jesus used wine. We use juice because some of you would have an issue with that, uh, you know, uh, and, and we don't want to set you back in any way. We use juice, and so uh, don't have to worry about that. And so take that juice, and you thank God 
uh, for his blood. Thank, thank Jesus for his blood that was spilled and that provided the sacrifice has given his life for your sins. Take that and, and, and drink that and remember his, his sacrifice. So, and then if you're a believer, what I would ask you to do is, uh, this is a response time. Then after that, we're gonna, we're gonna sing another song and, and man, we're gonna, our usher's gonna come and we're gonna take our offering, okay? So if you leave before then, we know you don't give. So uh, just joking. <laughs> I'm really joking. I don't give right now. I can say that because I don't give right now. I, I give online and it's set up. And so I encourage you to do that if you make a salary. So that was a total joke. But, uh, but anyway, my, uh, I digress. Now let me, regr- let me progress. Uh, we're going to take up our tithes and offerings. And then uh, Michael will dismiss you. And, uh, uh, but during that time in between, this is our response time. So you, at any time during this, you, you respond how God has led you. Man, you, you think about God's unmerited salvation. You think about the righteousness that Jesus gave you. You think about the fact that your sins tomorrow are already forgiven. And man, you don't have to live in guilt because God has taken that away. And, and God has taken the guilt of your past away and you're righteous before him. And you might need to confess some things to be holy and strive to do that. But you think about all that means and how it overwhelms you with gratitude and response to motivate you to live. That, that's the response. Some of you need to respond in repentance and confession. And some of you, we hope, respond by saying, I need to know how to appropriate this unmerited salvation in my life. I need, I need this. How do I get it? And so if that's you, come back and talk to us. We'd be glad to talk to you. So I'm going to pray. After I pray, our, uh, the band will play. Our ushers will pass it out. You uh, partake of communion at, when you're ready. And then uh, Micah, Michael will uh, uh, dismiss you. Father, we love you so much. Thank you for your amazing grace. God, we're here today worshiping because of an unmerited salvation. And God, I pray that, Lord, Lord, those here who are your children, God, that that would radically get into the fabric of who we are. And God, it would get so in us that it would ooze out of us in every pore we have. I pray that when we're at work, when we're at school, when we're at, uh, uh, on the ball field, when we're at home, that every relationship, Lord, would just smell the aroma of Christ all on us. God, I pray that it would ooze out in all we do and say. And God, I, I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't just be a people who talk a game, but that, that Lord, our salvation, our unmerited salvation, Lord, would be a, a fide viva, a living faith. God, as James said, Father, a faith that is proven in our works, not to get salvation, but because we have gotten it already. God, I pray that we would live in gratitude and not out of just duty, but out of delight in who you are and what you've done. God, as we come to this time of communion, help us to remember your body and blood. Lord, help us to Lord, remember it and help us in memory to be motivated to confess and to be motivated to live holy lives on mission for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.